let's pray. <coughs> Mighty God, you spoke the world into being. Speak now to our hearts. By the power of your spirit, make these ancient words live, that we might be shaped into your people, eager to bring your claim in the world and give flesh to your future. For we pray in the name of Jesus, who leads us in life. Amen. Our first reading this morning is from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. It's called God the Potter. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. Jeremiah received the Lord's word. Go down to the potter's house, and I'll give you instructions about what to do there. So I went down to the potter's house. He was working on the potter's wheel. But the piece he was making was flawed while still in his hand, so the potter started on another as seemed best to him. Then the Lord's words came to me. House of Israel, can't I deal with you like this potter, declares the Lord, like clay in the potter's hand. So you are in my house of Israel. At any time I may announce that I will dig up pull down and destroy a nation or kingdom. But if that nation, I warn, turns from its evil, then I'll relent and not carry out the harm I intended for it. At the same time, I may announce that I will build and plant a nation or kingdom. But if that nation displeases and disobeys me, then I'll relent and not carry out the good I intended for it. Now say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. I am a potter preparing a disaster for you. I'm working out a plan against you. So each one of you turn from your evil ways, reform your ways and your actions. Our psalm reading this morning is a psalm of David, it's a song, it's from the music, it's for the music leader, it's Psalm 139, condensed. Lord, you have examined me, you know me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. Even from far away, you comprehend my plans. You study my traveling and resting. You are thoroughly familiar with all my ways. There isn't a word on my tongue, Lord, that you don't already know completely. You surround me, front and back. You put your hand on me. The kind of knowledge, that kind of knowledge is too much for me. It's so high above me that I cannot reach it. You are the one who created my innermost parts. You knit me together while I was still in my mother's womb. I give thanks to you that I was marvelously set apart. Your works are wonderful. I know that very well. My bones weren't hidden from you when I was being put together in a secret place, when I was being woven together in the deep parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my embryo, and on your scroll every day was written that I was being you, that was being formed for me. Let's try that again. Your eyes saw my embryo, and on your scroll every day was written that was being formed for me. 
before any one of them had yet happened. God, your plans are incomprehensible to me. Their total number is countless. If I tried to count them, they outnumber grains of sand. If I come to the very end, I'd still be with you. could see into the future and my hand would go out and that flower and vase would go sailing towards Mary. I wanted to avoid doing that. Thank you to Lenny for bringing in the beautiful flower. Our gospel reading this morning comes from the book of Luke chapter 14 verses 25 through 33. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus Turning to them, he said, Whoever comes to me and doesn't hate father and mother, spouse and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, even one's own life, cannot be my disciple. Whoever doesn't carry their own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. If one of you wanted to build a tower, wouldn't you first sit down and calculate the cost to determine whether you have enough money to complete it? Otherwise, when you have laid the foundation but couldn't finish the tower, all who see it will begin to belittle you. They will say, here is the person who began construction and couldn't complete it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down to consider whether his 10,000 soldiers could go up against the 20,000 coming against him? And if he didn't think he could win, he would send a representative to discuss terms of peace while his enemy was still a long way off. In the same way, none of you who are unwilling to give up all of your possessions can be my disciple. Well, there we go. The Bible says it. Apply it to your life. We're all done. This is one of my favorite passages to press people who have a view of the Bible that you simply have to read it and apply it to your life, literally, word for word. Could Jesus actually be meaning that we are to hate our father and mother and brothers and sisters and spouse and children? Are we to really hate our own life? Does that fit into the rest of Jesus' teachings? I don't think it does. And I don't think Jesus is really telling us that we have to hate everyone. So what is Jesus telling us here? Because there are those that read the Bible and want to read it in this very oversly simplistic format that says you just read the words that are there and you apply them to your life and that's how the Bible's supposed to work. So is hate justified? Is it okay to hate people who are different than you as you try to follow and be a disciple of Jesus? Is it okay to hate your enemies? 
I think if we look at all of Jesus' teachings, the answer is no, it's not. What we have here, as Jesus is addressing the crowds, is an over-exaggeration to make a point. What Jesus is trying to get people who have been following him around and seeing these miracles and kind of wanting to see the show, he wants them to understand that if they truly want to follow and be his disciple, there is a great cost to it. It is not easy and it will not be cheap. It will cost them a lot. By the time these words were well circulated and written down, that was the truth of how the early church was living. They were under intense persecution in the Roman Empire. You see, by the time Jesus came into the picture, the Roman Empire had already peaked. It was on a decline. And that accelerated in this era of the early church so that those in power needed an excuse or somebody to blame for what was happening. And these early Christians seemed like as good a group as any. They were weird. They were cannibals. They talked about eating a body and drinking blood. They lived differently and they treated people differently. Surely they had upset the gods, which was bringing wrath, so they were the ones to blame. Following Jesus had a cost. Many paid with their lives. Many were ostracized from society and culture. Many lost all they had. And Jesus wanted to prepare people for that very real possibility. Jesus did not want anyone to come into this thinking it was easy. He wanted them to know what was happening and what would happen. He was living it in his own life as he moved closer and closer to the cross, and he wanted them to understand that they were on the same path. Many times we have it recorded that these large crowds were following Jesus, and they went away, sad at what Jesus was teaching. Jesus doesn't want you to hate anyone. But Jesus said, you should love me and be devoted to me to such an extent that it will look as though you hate everything else in comparison. That is the divide that should exist between how much you love Jesus and how much you love anything else. There should be no comparison. It should be all-consuming of us. Remember when Jesus narrowed down the law to the two commandments that he quotes from Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself, that doesn't leave room for anything else. Our devotion must be complete. Now that doesn't mean we don't have the capacity to love anything else. That's one of the paradoxes of the Christian faith. 
You know, paradox is when these two things that seemingly oppose one another are both true. So yes, Jesus demands and requires complete devotion. God demands and requires all of our love. But then, that is multiplied within us. And we have more capacity to love others than we have on our own. We can love people more truly and deeply after we have given all of ourselves to God than we ever could beforehand or on our own. By emptying out ourselves and being filled with the Spirit and God's love, we are filled to overflowing. And it's that overflowing of God's love that compels us and propels us into the world to transform it as the church. But far too often, those who stand in pulpits and those who lead congregations and those who claim to speak for God paint it as an easy thing. This is kind of why I'm against this idea of an altar call or praying a prayer and Jesus comes into your heart and you're saved and then you're done. Number one, Jesus never talks about that and it's not in the Bible. And number two, it presents it in a way that's inauthentic. That it's just this easy little thing and then you're fine forever. But discipleship and following Jesus demands much of us. But in a strange twist, the things it demands of us, even when it's suffering, we respond with joy and hope. The early Christians, there are accounts of them in the, in the gladiator games and being fed to lions for sport for the people. And they didn't respond with screams and terror. They responded with prayer, with joy. Because they understood what Paul said, to lose your life is to gain everything. And they were not afraid. Now, I'm not telling you to go seek out any gladiator games or any lions to test this, so please don't do that. I don't want to hear a news report of someone in the woods fighting bears. Don't do that either. But this text points us to how we are supposed to be different than other people in this world. We are to be noticeably and radically different as different as it is to love versus hate somebody. This is one of my favorite passages that illuminates the complexity of Scripture and how we have to approach it in a certain way and with a certain humility and how we always have to examine what Scripture says against the whole of Scripture. Because that stops us from pulling one thing out and creating a whole theology around it that's wrong. It is never okay to hate another person. You're never justified in doing so. Over and over it says we are to love others. Jesus taught that often. But always remember, always remember 
that you can only truly love others when you have first loved God with all of your heart and strength and mind and spirit. Because it's only then that we can rid ourselves of the hate that lives in us. It is only then that we can pour out love in abundance like a faucet that can't be shut off because it's not coming from us. It's flowing through us from God. To be a disciple of Jesus is demanding. But it is also the most rewarding thing we can do with our lives. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Community Presbyterian Church in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. 